Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is Dr. Susan Collins. She's from the University of Washington, Seattle. Uh, she's been studying wet housing, uh, housing for homeless alcoholics where they're allowed to drink, and has come up with some really interesting results. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book, our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to putting all together. And our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon, and uh, you can get more information about it from hamsnetwork.org book. And our guest, Susan Collins, is right here. We're going to bring her on right now. Susan, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. It's a really interesting study that you have been doing about uh, housing uh, homeless alcoholics in wet housing. Um, as I was mentioning to you right before the show, I actually lived in wet housing myself for a couple of years, and I've talked about this online, and so it's, uh, it's no new surprise to some people here. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit eventually. First, I want to get to your study and some of the results you found. Um, so this is a housing program where people are allowed to drink. And did you find that they drank more when they were housed and allowed to drink, or what happened to their drinking habits? Uh, well, what we what we did in the study is we looked at the relationship between the time a person spent in this housing first project, and we it's a it's project based housing first, so people are living in one um, individual housing project, and um, we looked at the relationship of time spent in this project and alcohol use among chronically homeless people with alcohol problems over a two year period. Um, and what Housing First is, is it's the provision of immediate, permanent, low-barrier, supportive housing. Again, as I mentioned, this is within a single housing project. And it's considered low-barrier because, as you mentioned, it, reduces, it removes some of the traditional barriers to housing, such as requiring abstinence from alcohol. And in the context of this study, uh, we tested this so-called enabling hypothesis, which is a widely held assumption, both, I would say, in popular culture in America, but also among treatment professionals, that allowing homeless, chronically, homeless, uh, homeless uh, chronically alcohol-dependent individuals to just drink in their homes would enable them to drink more and more, and their drinking would just spiral out of control. Contrary to the enabling hypothesis, however, we found across-the-board decreases on alcohol consumption and alcohol-related problems. Um, and I think sort of the takeaway point for us was that chronically homeless people with alcohol problems are very capable of making positive changes in their lives if they're given the same chance as the rest of us, and getting that chance really starts with having a home. Okay. Uh, you mentioned Housing First. It's a Housing First project. I was just going to say that uh, a couple months back uh, we uh, interviewed Sam Semberus, who is uh, the founder, I think, of Housing First. We've got a show archived on that, so if our listeners want to go back and check that out, that's a related show uh, uh, to this topic. Um, so we are housing, um, we're housing the chronic. Uh, what I want to ask is, did you look at the differences in individuals that were housed here? Were some of them much heavier drinkers than others, and others that were drink, drank much less frequently or uh, less lesser amounts? Was there a wide range of different people in this housing program? There really is a wide range um, of individuals who live there. Um, 
in in many different ways. You know, people come from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different educational backgrounds, racial, ethnic backgrounds. So it is a very diverse, serving a very diverse population of people. What really brings people together in the house is their experience of chronic homelessness and the co-occurring symptoms of homelessness. You know, um, a lot of times people are multiply affected by substance use disorders, um, psychiatric problems, and um, medical problems, because living on the streets really does take its toll on your mind and your body over time. Um, And so what we found in terms of drinking, we we looked at drinking both um, among uh, the group as a whole and we took into account the fact that different people are going to have different trajectories in their drinking over time. As a whole, we found that on average, people decrease their drinks um, from um, their heaviest drinking day on the month. They decreased from 40 to 26 across two years, um, and that is a decrease of 35%. Um, and we also found looking at the median number of drinks, which is a more accurate view of drinking patterns in this particular population, we found that people uh uh, reduce their drinking from 20 to 12 drinks per typical drinking day, which is a 40% drop. Um, also as a whole, we found that residents reported uh, less experience of delirium tremens, which is a serious form of alcohol withdrawal that is really life-threatening. And that experience dropped by more than half over the two-year period, from 65% to 23%. Now, some people have asked me, you know, is that for everyone? Like you just asked, you know, are some people, do they experience different kinds of decreases or changes in their drinking over time? And they do. In general, people's drinking decreased, and we did find that a few people uh, did give up drinking altogether in the house. Some of those individuals decided to stay on in the house because it is permanent housing, um, and others decided to move on to other housing that was more in line with their new goals for their drinking and also for other aspects of their lives. So uh, there was a lot of diversity, but in general what we found was the uh, both the drinking rates and the experience of alcohol-related problems decreased. I found uh, something very similar in my own experience as being a resident in uh, in a program like that. It was uh, in St. Paul and St. Anthony residence, mm-hmm. and uh, I noticed a wide variation. There were some people, as you said, that they quit drinking completely there, decided that mm-hmm. this was they felt it was their home. This is where they wanted to stay right now. They didn't want to move out, but they didn't want to drink either, so there were some that were totally abstinent. I found that there were people that were daily drinkers, and then there were other people that would, uh, they're basically weekend warriors now, you know, and mm-hmm. they would have, you know, abstain quite low, quite most of the week they would abstain and then drink a couple days, you know, to a high degree of intoxication. But, you know, mm-hmm. so there was quite a wide range of uh, different drinking patterns there. Sure. Yeah, it sounds like your experience um, and, and knowing the neighbors that you knew is very similar to the experience in this particular housing project. And to give, um, you know, listeners an idea of, you know, because some people are interested, you know, can you achieve abstinence from alcohol in a housing project where people are allowed to drink? We did find that um, 13 of the 95 participants in our study achieved abstinence from alcohol at some point after they moved in and consistently reported that for um every time we asked them throughout the end of the study. 
Um, and uh, 26% of the sample reported abstinence for at least one month during the two-year period. So, you know, a lot of times people say that, um, you know, chronically homeless people with alcohol dependence, you know, really can't make these changes. They just, they've been doing this for so long, they're so severely affected by alcohol dependence, they can't possibly make changes. And I think, again, you know, depending on what your perspective on change is, is that going to be for you? Is that going to be abstinence? Is that going to be safer drinking? Is that going to be drinking reduction? No matter how we slice it, um, really people did show us in the study that they were able to change their behavior in some way that possibly is reducing their alcohol-related harm. Um, and that can be abstinence, again, or it can be reducing drinking or, you know, drinking in a, a safer way. And I think drinking in a safer way for this particular group of people is important because on the streets a lot of times people um, need to resort to drinking non-beverage alcohol um, to uh, stave off alcohol uh, withdrawal. And, you know, sometimes that means drinking things like mouthwash or um, drinking things like rubbing alcohol that are potentially um, dangerous to your body. So even moving from, you know, rubbing alcohol, you know, to whiskey is in and of itself safer drinking. So all of that kind of movement is something that we really saw happening once people had the stability of housing and um, and is definitely an impressive change among a group of people where we usually say, oh, they can't change. Obviously, they proved this wrong. Well, I know one of my uh, friends there, I believe he was abstinent from alcohol for like five years uh, when I first moved in and first met him. And, you know, he continued to be abstinent. He was not interested in drinking anymore. It was just, it was just dumb, but he also wasn't interested in moving to a different residence. He was you know, more comfortable there than at the other alternatives he had available. Was not interested in a 12-step program, did not want that sort of thing uh, in his life. Um, one other thing that people had mentioned to me was when they were living on the street, you know, if they got, like, a bottle of vodka, if they got, like, a liter of vodka, they'd want to drink it down very quickly before mm-hmm. uh, it got stolen. Absolutely. Absolutely, and I think you're touching on a few important things to address your first point, you know, that people stay in the house even after they've changed their drinking in some way. Um, you know, one, we, we've done qualitative studies with the residents um, as well, and they've kind of told us their stories and their experiences moving from the streets indoors. And um, we heard a very similar story from one resident in particular who said who had stopped drinking alcohol, and I see him on a regular basis now when I'm when I'm at the housing project, and he always checks in with me. And he, you know, he made it very clear to me that he's decided to stay in the house despite the fact he no longer drinks. What he does now is he goes on runs to the store to pick up things that other people in the house who can't get around so well need. And he talks about that as, you know, for a lot of years he was really kind of trapped by his um, alcohol dependence and didn't do things for others. And this is a way he can now pay back his friends and his community by, you know, doing things to help people who are more in need than he is. And uh, he said he'd never move out because this is his home and and this is his family. So I, I definitely think that that experience of community um, exists on the streets, and it definitely exists um, and, and maybe is even enhanced once people have housing and and really do look out for one another in, in housing as well as on the streets. Um, to, uh, I'm trying to remember what your second point was. Uh, you had mentioned drinking, drinking, uh, quickly. drinking quickly, right, drinking quickly. 
Absolutely. And again, in the qualitative interviews that we've done with people, um, we have heard things like people would drink to stay warm on the streets, people would drink so, you know, the cops would not catch them with the alcohol because, again, it's illegal Mm -hmm. to be, you know, have an open container. Um, People, like you said, would drink it while they had it um, because you don't know uh, how long you'll have the alcohol. Um, And also, uh, we, we heard that there's a sobering center in Seattle um, where people can um, come indoors and stay warm, but only if they're intoxicated. And so some people would wait until midnight and they'd drink everything that they had so that they would reach an intoxication level that was high enough to get into a warm bed. And so, you know, even even the programs that often we offer in our in our you know, communities are actually counterproductive in some ways because, you know, people are doing what they need to do to survive on the streets. And and that is, in in many ways, you know, is going to be um, put people more at risk for alcohol-related harm when they're drinking on the streets. And now that people are in housing, um, you know, they're able to, as one resident said to me, drink to maintain. So just basically drinking to stave off the life-threatening alcohol withdrawal symptoms maybe hang out with their friends and ride a buzz, but it's not that same level of um, sort of desperation drinking that happens on the street. Yeah, that just reminds me of something else I used to see in Minneapolis um, because it gets really cold there. and mm-hmm. you know, uh, th- There were two things that people would do. One, you know, just to get out of the cold, and one was to get drunk and check into detox. So mm-hmm. you'd have three days of a warm bed, and some people would actually check into residential treatment for a month because it got them off the street. Uh, they weren't mm-hmm. interested in they weren't interested in stopping drinking, but they didn't have any other housing option available. So right. they it was an extremely expensive way for everyone involved, since ultimately the government paid for the treatment. Uh, it was a very expensive way for them to get housed, and it wasn't really. Uh, you know, productive to anyone because right. they had no interest. Uh, you know, they would they would tell you right out. I did. I came here to get housed. I'm not interested in the treatment. You are, and you're absolutely right. You know, using detox as respite um, is not only. I mean, it's not only expensive. The research has shown that it it doesn't really work because what it does is contribute to this revolving door of homelessness, where you know you're on the streets, you go to detox, you're on the streets, you go to jail. You know, and it's not. The, the effects of detox for most people who have been through multiple bouts with treatment um, are usually not sustainable over time. There's another really important thing that not a lot of people talk about, I think, especially in the medical community, that I think is important for your listeners to know about, and this is about the kindling effect. And this is a pretty well-known medical phenomenon that every time a person goes through alcohol withdrawal, um, you know, that is you know, stopping using alcohol from from heavy drinking and then going cold turkey, basically. Um, there's electrochemical changes that take place in the brain and damage the brain, and that's where the seizures come from and, you know, the, the tremors and, and whatnot. That's your brain kind of reacting to this acute alcohol withdrawal. And every time it, it, it really does, you know, cause destruction inside of the brain structures, even if that's medically supervised. Um Basically, the the drugs we use to um, to treat um, alcohol withdrawal in medical facilities just really kind of masks 
those effects. Even benzodiazepines, they kind of mask the effects, but that damage is still being done. So for some individuals who have been through, as our participants had, 16 failed lifetime treatment attempts where every time they go through detox once again, um, you know, accumulating more detoxes and going through that harmful alcohol withdrawal cycle once again is probably not going to be the least harmful way to approach um, treatment for these individuals. So that's really something that we oftentimes, you know, we think detox is probably a good thing. For some individuals, it may not be such a good thing. Yeah, there are still uh, many detoxes in the country. Um, I mean, I'm in contact with people in a lot of different states, and the different states vary immensely in the way they treat detoxification. Um Minnesota is actually quite good on detox, detoxification. They give people adequate medications to take them down slowly so that they don't have uh, such severe problems. I mean, kindling, if you go cold turkey, it really increases the kindling effect greatly. If you have the medication or the alcohol taper to get you down slowly, you mm-hmm. can greatly reduce the kindling effect. But I've heard yes. several people telling me stories of different states where, well, they won't give me any medications. They just lock me up and make me go cold turkey. Mm, that is definitely not recommendable, yeah. <laughs> that is that is the mo- probably the most harmful way you could go because alcohol, acute alcohol withdrawal can be um, deadly, and uh, so that should be taken very seriously. But even with the use of medications, there are still um, lasting effects of alcohol withdrawal um, that occur in the brain, um, even when it's medically supervised. So it is something to kind of consider in terms of harm reduction. Is it going to actually, is there going to be a net harm reduction if a person goes through another detox cycle um, versus continue to drink, particularly if, as you said, they're just using that detox for respite. Um, perhaps what we should be doing then is housing those individuals and helping increase their stability and then at that point, they can kind of see what kind of changes they feel like they can make in a sustainable way versus having that, you know, revolving door. Okay. Another topic I want to look at, we have a classical picture of the the road to downfall of the drunkard. I think it goes back to Hogarth and people where we see this steady progression down into homelessness and poverty and disease and mm-hmm. death. But uh, we never look at, uh, or we seldom look at the opposite possibility. You know, does living on the street drive people to drink? You know, we have people that were actually uh, got homeless, not because they were drunkards to begin with, but once they were out on the street, did the drinking increase uh, dramatically? And have you looked at all at that? Um, Well, and I think that's a really important question. Um, That's certainly a part of the medical model of of drinking as well. Um, It's pretty ingrained that, you know, particularly people who are more severely affected, you know, their drinking will just spiral out of control and they're going to kind of, you know, hit, you know, hit rock bottom at some point. And what we know about actual drinking patterns these days, I mean, statistically speaking, is that's not usually how it looks for most drinkers. Most drinkers go through different phases of their lives where they drink less, they drink more. You know, it's usually not just a downward spiral and down to death. You know, that's not usually how it goes for most people. So there are there are um, different trajectories that we're aware of now that we don't usually talk about. Again, this is something that is not as commonly known. Um, but your point is a good one about do you, you know does does alcohol cause um, 
the homelessness problem or, you know, is it vice versa? And I would say it's really transactional. One thing that we found out through our research with um, with this population and the, these particular participants is the majority of the participants, the vast majority, um, had experienced uh, PTSD in their lifetime, um, had been through incredible levels of childhood trauma, um, had spent um, you know time on the streets since they were very young, left home as early as seven years of age, you know were repeatedly abused sexually and physically in their home situation growing up, um, and really that their lives have kind of been a cycle of um, you know being in negative relationships and situations where they've been abused and then escaping that. And for a lot of people, for a lot of young adults, escaping that meant going to the streets. Um, where obviously they might be exposed to abuse as well and and, and the, the, the multiple problems that come with living on the streets. So um, I would say that there are multiple factors that um, that lead to homelessness. You know, it um, oftentimes is early childhood experiences and trauma. There's, a, um, you know, experiences of coming from a, a background um, that's lower, from a lower socioeconomic level where you have fewer choices and you have fewer options. Um, there is, you know, mental illness plays a large role in this as well. Early childhood experiences with alcohol. A lot of our residents have said things like, you know, my parents had a still in the backyard and I had my first drink when I was seven. Another resident told me that um, when she went um, to her stepfather's um, house on the weekends where her mother was living, that they would wake up the children and say, okay, kids, wake up, it's tequila time, and that was when they were 12, and they would give the kids tequila and have them clean up their house and their yard. So, you know, these experiences of really early on alcohol use that was often forced on the children by the parents in some way um, contributes to it as well. Um, and so there are mul- these multiple factors kind of come together to make a person more vulnerable um, that in some way they need to escape the situation and they escape to the streets, and then that becomes, you know, over time a part of the way they they, they live. Um, and so then, of course, once you're on the streets, as I said before, being on the streets is incredibly hard on both your body and your mind. So um, that's what I'm saying. It's transactional. There are a lot of factors that go into homelessness, but then being homeless feeds back into a lot of those factors that were there to begin with. Yeah, I mean it's 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 really difficult for people to sleep on the streets unless oh, it's they pass really difficult, pass yeah. out, unless they pass mm-hmm. out with alcohol or something, or there mm-hmm. are other people that are staying up all night with speed so they they don't have to mm-hmm. go to sleep. Right, and so life is a constant like you're constantly you know um, you're you're constantly up and then you have to take the edge off of the speed so you drink a little alcohol and you come down a little but you need to be more aware so you take some more speed so it's constantly you're trying to uh renegotiate uh the the substance levels in your body which of course also takes its toll on your body because your body is being pulled in two directions on the one hand you have alcohol the depressant in there and on the other hand you have speed which is an upper so your body is kind of torn in two directions when that's happening on the streets as well. Well, you mentioned the impact of uh, of early childhood drinking um, and the parental influence. But uh, in my own case, uh, both my parents, all four grandparents, they were all religious teetotalers. Mm. And for me, you know, the factor of rebellion was a huge 
And in fact, there there were some studies on this. Uh, the the Tecumseh studies uh, in Michigan, I think, saw that moderate drinkers, when the parents were moderate drinkers, then most often the children were moderate drinkers too. Mm-hmm. But when the mm-hmm. parents were at either extreme, uh, they were you know religious abstainers, very strict, or if they were very heavy drinkers, then some of the children would emulate the parents and others would rebel. I mean, there would mm-hmm. be children of alcoholics who would rebel and said, I'll never drink, and they never drank in their life. <clears throat> and there were other parents of abstainers who would, I mean, children of abstainers who would rebel and say, well, I want to drink a lot because I don't want to be like my parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you that, you know, extremes, um, you know, in terms of, of behavior often lead to more extremes. <laughs> so you're probably right in that aspect. We have found pretty consistently in the literature that most people, so when we do this kind of research, you know, we're talking about the majority of people, right, which mm-hmm, never mm-hmm. is going to tell the story of one individual person, but it's more like average together. In general, parents who drink um, are more likely to have children who drink. You know, you learn mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that behavior in the home, and you learn maybe from your parents that that's how you celebrate or that's how you deal with stress. There's also the biological component. You know, people who drink um, throughout their life are probably more biologically respondent to alcohol. So they their bodies respond better to alcohol, and the high works for them. Um, whereas people who have decided not to drink, oftentimes they just, you know, alcohol is just not their drug of choice. It doesn't do as much for them. So genetically and also behaviorally, oftentimes families who drink, parents who drink, will kind of pass on that behavior to their children for a combination of those reasons. But it is true that, you know, um, there are exceptions to that, and teenage years are especially rebellious years where you're trying to differentiate and individuate from your parents. And so it is definitely, um, at that point, you look more to your peers and you um you know you rebel against your parents based on your peers behavior so if you're starting to hang out with you know the rock and roll crowd that's using alcohol and other drugs that peer group influence is going to be more important during those early teenage years than your parents influence so it can it can definitely you know there are definitely multiple factors um that are involved in that yeah the study i was uh, referring to <laughs> found what what you were saying you know the the majority would emulate mm-hmm. the behavior, whether it was heavy drinking or abstinence, and then a smaller minority would rebel, mm-hmm. and then the, you know, but it was the children of the moderate drinkers who had the least to to rebel against right. or the least problematic behaviors to emulate. So they generally became mm-hmm. moderate drinkers and didn't okay. go to either extreme. So that was I, a, I'm not familiar with that particular study, but it sounds it sounds really that's sounds really interesting and certainly sounds like it it makes sense right mhm mm-hmm. well mm-hmm. it it goes along with what we what a lot of us a lot of us have observed in the real world and just confirms right. things that we see <laughs> <laughs> so yeah because uh, yeah, too much of the story that we get from you know the mainstream just says well you know children of alcoholic parents will always emulate and be the same way but it doesn't seem to be that way Mm-mm. Yeah, it definitely raises the risk, but there are definitely going to be children who go the opposite way. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, one other thing you mentioned I wanted to go into a little more. 
was you talk about, talked about uh, this fellow who was uh, running errands for the other people in the house and doing things to mm-hmm. give something back. And I mm-hmm. noticed so much with the group of people that I lived with that the majority of them were always looking out for each other. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, most of the staff at the place that I was at were, were nice people, but we had a couple rotten apples on the staff. And I remember one guy mm-hmm. in particular He'd say he would see people passed out in the snow at like ten below, and he'd say, "Well, they'll come in when they get cold enough." And you know, we'd we'd have to go out. We we the drunkards would have to go out and pick them up and drag them in so they didn't freeze to death because you know he was not concerned about that. But you know, uh, we always looked out for each other and did Mm -hmm. so. We did a lot of things to help each other out. So I mean, that's. uh, I think people in uh, you know the general listening audience they don't perceive homeless people that way. They have much more negative perception. But really, it's people who help help each other out a lot. It's absolutely true. Um, and like I said, we have a couple of studies that were recently published. Well, one's in press and one is published that talk about just that and the the level of helping behaviors. Um, you know, I think it's just a lot of people in the general public aren't familiar. You know, maybe they don't know people who have been homeless or who are homeless. And so they're just unfamiliar um, with the culture. And I think the thing I've learned about homelessness is it, it definitely there is a culture of the streets and there are subcultures within that culture. Um, but essentially we're all human beings and we all do the same things like you know it's a bad it's a bad thing if i take someone's ba- last beer out of their refrigerator it's the same among homeless people so you don't want to ever take anyone's last beer that's that's definitely that's not that's going against the social norm but um so i think a lot of the stuff that we have in we have in common i mean we're all human beings and you know that we have more in common um, and the things that people think, you know, are just so vastly different, um, I think it's just because, you know, people look different when they're living on the streets or, you know, living on the streets affects people in different ways. But at the end of the day, we're all human. We all have, you know, values and we have communities that we care about and we have connections to other people. And that might look a little bit different if you're living in a house versus if you're living on the streets, but that's all still there. Yeah, I think that's a really nice note to end on. And I want to thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Dr. Susan Collins. Thank you so much for having me, Ken. It's been a great time talking with you. Okay, everybody come back tomorrow. We have another show tomorrow. Our guest will be Stanton Peel. We're going to be doing a summing up of our first year of shows. We're going to be moving after this to a little less intense schedule than we've been having. And, uh, See everyone tomorrow. Thank you and good night.